Thanks a lot for coming back to Spain, 1959-1992. Uh, Today, I'm going to talk about Spain and the world from 1976 to 1991. So, that's the year right after Franco's death. And 1991 is um, the year historians, some agree to um, that, uh, that's when um, the end of the Cold War happened. So from 76 to 91. The question I'm going to try and cluster my thoughts around today is, was Spain an um, European, an American? Hello. So, okay, so the question I'm going to try and cluster my thoughts around today is, was Spain an Atlantic, European, an American, or a Mediterranean power? So to help us think about today's question, I'm going to focus on Spain's European community and NATO memberships, Spain's relations with the US and Latin America, and its role in the end of the Cold War. I will then go on to talk about how to use elite interviewing in historical research. Um, as promised in last week's lecture, I'll share some new interview material with you, and I hope this material, oral history, um, can give you a sense of how, how might you um, want to go about doing your own research. I'll finish off today's lecture, so the last in this lecture series, with Javier Marias's 1989 novel, Todas las Almas, All Souls, um, which, uh, as it was translated in English. So the book is set in Oxford, and the narrator is an Oxford University lecturer at the Spanish sub-faculty. -sub so he teaches Spanish here in the mid-1980s. So I'll start off um, with Winston Churchill. Uh, that might sound bizarre to you, since we're talking about Spain, but actually it's not. Um, so after World War II in 1948, Churchill delivered a speech at a conservative meeting in Wales, where he talked about Britain's three great circles. Britain's foreign policy, he said, can be divided... Britain's three, um, so Britain's foreign policy can be divided into, into three interlinked circles. The British Commonwealth and Empire, um, the English-speaking world in which the United States plays so important a role, and United Europe. And he said, I almost wish I had a blackboard. I um, I'd make a picture for you, although I don't suppose it'd get hung in the Royal Academy. So uh, Britain, therefore, in his view, stood at the very point of junction in between these three circles. So Churchill's post-World War II, beginning of the Cold War um, circles for Britain, I think can be a useful way for us to think about Spain's international role during the last decade and a half of the Cold War. So I'm not going to use circles. Instead, I'm going to use squares. So Spanish squares to think about Spain and its European, its American, and its Mediterranean dimensions. I guess what I... Uh, I this isn't going to be hung at the Royal Academy either, but I'm fine with that. Um, I guess what I'm also trying to hint at is whether um, a, a country or Spain's international role um, can be limited or enhanced depending on... Um, it, the geographical positioning, so its nature, whether it's to do with its history or whether it's act active agency, so policy, that can shape a country's international role. 
So at the time of General Franco's death in 1975, Spain was not a member of the European Community and it was not a member of NATO. So these two organisations were founded um, at the sort of very beginning of the Cold War period and uh, so Spain was not a member of either of these two organisations for about three to four decades. Now let's put this into a broader Southern European slash dictatorships um, country's context. So Spain is a Southern European country, it was a dictatorship at the time, it was not in NATO and it was not in the European community. Um, Portugal and Greece, however, they were in NATO, they were also dictatorships and are Southern European countries. They, however, as well, they were, like Spain, not in the European community, so they were in NATO but not in um, in the European Economic Community. So the start of Spain's transition from dictatorship to democracy took place a few months after the 1975 Helsinki Final Act was signed. So the Helsinki Accords were signed by all European countries, including the Soviet Union um, and Albania. Uh, oh, sorry, but not Albania. So Soviet Union, the United States, um, all other European countries and Canada signed the Helsinki Final Act. And the first, so this first conference on security and cooperation in Europe is a sort of proof that um, tensions between the two superpowers um, at this time period were curbing during the Cold War. So the mid-70s is a time where um, tension decreases between the two blocs. Some um, scholars argue that actually it wasn't really at this time period um, superpower détente, so that's the curbing of tension. It wasn't really superpower détente that was going on, but rather European détente. Um, so regardless of whether it's one or the other, the fact is that um, Spain's transition to democracy was taking place within this um, decrease of tensions uh, between the two blocs. So... Um, as President Adolfo Suárez became, um, took office in July 1976, we've talked about him in previous lectures, um, because Spain had no relations with many countries at the time, so there was a big campaign to establish, so to normalise relations with uh, all these different countries. So for, in four years, um, Spain signed 19 um, established relations with 19 countries, so including the Soviet Union um, and other Soviet satellites such as Poland and the German um, Democratic Republic, other non-European countries such as Vietnam or Mozambique, uh, and also Mexico. And Mexico is important here because um, the Spanish um, government of the Republic had fled to Mexico um, during World War II when Nazi troops invaded France. So... Um, the president of Mexico at the time, President Lázaro Cárdenas, had um, shown support to the Spanish um, Republican government. So, um, as for the European Community, Spain's first application was in 1962, and that went unanswered. Um, the European Parliament adopted the Birkelbach Report, which essentially ruled out non-democratic countries from becoming European community members. 
Spain, however, in 1917 did sign a preferential trade agreement with the European Community, but that was far from becoming a full member. By 1975, so this is something Charles Powell writes, it was widely accepted that the democratization process would be incomplete until it had been formally sanctioned by Brussels, while Spain's continued exclusion from the European community would represent an insult to national pride as well as negation of democratic credibility. So unless Brussels, unless the European community accepted Spain as a full member, the idea was that Spain wasn't really fully democratic. That was um, the mindset. But Spain's road to full European community membership would be um, a very long and difficult one. So in the meantime, um, Spain joins the Council of Europe. Um, the Council of Europe is the continent's leading human rights organisation. So the idea was um, if these other European institutions are not just um, allowing us in right now, let's join these other institutions that do show that our proof of um, uh, non-human rights violations and, uh, um, and that the country is democratic. So this will become particularly significant when I go on to talk about elite interviewing later on. So um, after Spain's first free elections, Spain um, applies for membership, for European community membership again. And what's interesting about this, about the Spanish case, is that all political parties are in favour. That's not the case in Portugal. That's not the case in Greece, because the communist parties are against um, Portuguese and um, Greek uh, entry into the European community. But Santiago Carrillo, who we've um, talked about in previous lectures, so as the head of the Spanish Communist Party, he was part, or he was one of the founders of the Euro-Communist movement in the mid-70s, along with Georges Marchais of France, and uh, Enrico Berlinguer uh, of Italy. So this Euro-communist movement sought independence from the Soviet Union, um, from uh, the Soviet Union's um, Communist Party doctrine. And actually, the Soviet Union, during the Cold War, condemned the idea of European integration. Powell, again, notes that, that democratization was expected to pave the way for Spanish integration into the European community and NATO, which Moscow equated with an increase in U.S. influence in Western Europe. Seen in this light, the Soviet Union had little to gain from a successful transition to democracy in Spain. Um, so it's interesting that at, because Spain had um, signed back in 1953 a bilateral agreement with the U.S., Spain was partly, um, was in a way, in the Western bloc, in, uh, and participated and, and contributed actively to the West's security system, but it was not part of a multilateral alliance such as NATO. So in a way, what we have is um, Spain sort of being the last chess piece to be, play to be played in Western Europe. So this was partly the reason why um, to oversee um, and, to make, and to ensure that Spain did not actually join NATO, um, the ambassador that the Soviet Union sent to Spain during the transition all the way up to 1986 was the second-in-command of the Soviet Foreign Ministry. Um, and 
Um, he was actually, his name is Yuri Dubinin, and he was actually then Soviet ambassador to the United Nations and then to the United States. So he went from Spain to the UN to the US, um, and he oversaw the end of the Cold War as ambassador to the US. By the way, his political memoirs are the most obscure and um, elusive I've ever come across. Um, also, um, in the 1960s, um, in, so in the late Franco period, Spanish foreign policymakers displayed a strong independent streak, notably in relation to Latin America, including Fidel Castro's Cuba and the Arab world, thereby irritating the West. To an extent, President Suarez continued this strong independent um, streak when he visited Castro in 78, um, and when he became Europe's first ever Prime Minister to receive um, Yasser Arafat, um, then chairman of the Palestine Liberation Organization, the PLO. Spain had no diplomatic relations with Israel at the time. So later that year, Spain became an observer, uh, so in 1979, Spain became an observer of the non-aligned movement at its conference in Havana. And um, President Suarez, in fact, um, offered to host the second um, CSCE review conference in Madrid. So the, that was um, the review conference after the Helsinki Accords. And the way it usually works um, is that the host country is a neutral country. So um, Helsinki, then it was Belgrade, and that was where the non-aligned movement was founded in 1961. Uh, and later, after Madrid, it was Vienna which was neutral since 1955. Um, so I do hope it's sort of given you a sense of, um, uh, so far, of three of these three squares I, I talked about earlier. So President Leopoldo Calvo Sotelo, who we also talked about, particularly last week, um, when we discussed the military, the attempted military coup in Parliament. So um, his government... Uh, vowed to get Spain in the European community and NATO. But that was easier said than done. In 1980, at the Chamber of Agriculture's Permanent Assembly meeting um, in France, President Valéry Giscard d'Estaing announced that he would not support swift candidate accession to the European community. So that meant that he was not going to support, like he'd done with Greece, um, Spain or Portugal's swift entry to the European community. So the so-called Giscardato, which could be um, loosely translated as Giscard's coup, um, so it was a total setback for Spain. And his change of heart, in a way, brought back memories of Gen General de Gaulle's veto to Britain's first European community application in 1963. In the Spanish case, the Giscardato was not a full veto, um, like the, um, the Gaulle one had been, uh, but it definitely um, slowed down negotiations. NATO, so entry into NATO, was a completely different matter altogether. And uh, Spain did manage to, to join NATO in 1982. Uh, I think something to bear in mind is that Spain joined um, NATO after a 30-year hiatus, so there had been no other country to join NATO since 1955, so 
about like three decades earlier, um, and that was West Germany. So when West Germany joined NATO, then um, in '55, then uh, the Soviet Union put and uh, its satellites put together the Warsaw Pact, partly in response to West Germany's um, entry into NATO. So Spain's NATO accession also in, showed, in a way, um, that Spain was now a democratic country. It had not previously been allowed to join because it wasn't democratic. So now Spain um, did join, so it was a proof that it was democratic. And this would also help um, ensure that the Spanish army um, would collaborate with um, other armies in Europe and therefore curb its tendencies of uh, interventionism, uh, political interventionism. So Spain's western, so the, the Atlantic western square we were talking about earlier went from being purely a bilateral agreement with the US to uh, a multilateral alliance. So Spain had barely joined uh, NATO and was still in the process of joining the alliance's military command structure when Felipe González, the um, Secretary General of the Socialist Party, um, came and um, won the October 1982 general elections. So one of González's uh, pre-election commitments was to put Spain's continued NATO membership up for referendum. So did that mean that Spain would be the last country to join NATO and perhaps the first to leave as well? In 86, then, um, President González held a in-out NATO referendum. Spain was the only country ever to hold an in-out NATO referendum. Spain's exit, so Spexit, um, from the Atlantic Alliance was a real possibility back in the 1980s and was greatly unsettling to its allies. <coughs> um, the idea was that it's not the same to uh, not join NATO than to uh, join and then leave, um, especially in this Cold War context. Uh, it didn't make um, the NATO allies look particularly good. So the 1986 NATO ref um, referendum was perhaps the most polemical issue in Spain in the 1980s. Um, and Felipe González, um, Spain's longest serving president, still describes it today as his, um, his most difficult political issue. Opposition to Spain's continued NATO membership came from the left and the right. And... Um, in contrast, the government, uh, President González and the Socialist Party, argued that Spain must show solidarity with Europe's overall project, and that, and this is a particularly nice image I find, and that leaving NATO would be like getting off a transatlantic ship and deciding to sail in a rowing boat instead. Um, Results of the referendum were quite surprising because um, about a week before the, the referendum took place, it seemed like Spain was actually going to leave um, NATO. But in the end, a surprising 52% um, of Spaniards who voted accepted staying in NATO, whilst 39% voted um, the out option. The European communities two major partners, so West, at the time West Germany and France, 
both played key roles in Spain's European community negotiations. So at the moment, Spain is still not in the European community, partly because France has become Spain's main obstacle to join. West Germany, on the other hand, was Spain's chief backer. So for a, a few years, there were ongoing negotiations, particularly uh, on agricultural um, issues with France. Um, and Spain finally joined the European community in, nine, in June 1985. Oh, no. This is it. Um, in June 1985. Uh, and that was the, the European community's third enlargement. So the second enlargement had, was Greece in 81. The first enlargement had been Denmark, um, Great Britain, and Ireland back in 73. And once Spain joined the European community, it, was, it very enthusiastically contributed to the European project. So um, a very Euro-enthusiast um, country. The transition to democracy in Spain occurred just as dictatorships spread through Latin America. Spain's policy toward Latin America um, shifted at the time. So it went from um, culture to democracy, human rights, and economic development. So, for instance, um, Franco's Institute for Hispanic Culture then became the Institute for Iber Ibero-American Cooperation. So it went from culture to democracy and economic, um, economic aid, economic development. And this institute was particularly important um, to, for Spain's new dem democracy promotion policies. The 1980s were a time of turmoil in Central America, especially in El Salvador, in Nicaragua, and Guatemala. And Spain played a key role in supporting uh, what was called the Contadora Group, to encourage regional peace and to reduce the possibility of U.S. involvement in um, the region, so in its backyard. With the fifth cent centenary of Columbus's voyage to the New World fast approaching, so 1492, talking about 1992, so 1992 is fast approaching, el quinto centenario del descubrimiento, um, Spain set up lots of new institutions to do with Latin America. So the Ibero-American Community of Nations was one of them, and with it, its annual Ibero-American Summit. Unlike Churchill's Commonwealth Circle we saw earlier, or indeed the French community, which replaced the French Union and itself succeeded the French colonial empire, Spanish America had long been independent, so there was no such thing of... Um, a continuity of institutions that perhaps we change because the situation is different. There are no institutions to do with Spain's former empire. So um, in, the 1980s, in the 1990s, there are lots of new institutions which are set up to bring these countries together, so the Spanish-speaking world. Uh, and indeed, the Cervantes Institute, which is Spain's British Council, the Alliance Française equivalent, was founded in 1991. Once Spain joined the European community, Spain began to channel its Latin American policy through Europe, um, and Spain played a key role in constructing the European community's Latin American policy. And this is a topic that interests you. I suggest you read Celestino de Larena's work.
especially his foreign policy of Spain and relations with Latin America. So to go back to today's question, was Spain a European, an American, or a Mediterranean power? I think President Gonzalez puts it quite, quite neatly um, in his first visit to the White House in June 1983. And he says, Spain is a European and Western country the most Western of the European countries. Nothing then more logical than its wish and its desire to participate and become integrated within the European and the Western world and cooperate with it in a common destiny. But we're also a southern country in Europe. We're very close to Africa and our coast is in the Mediterranean basin. This defines another important aspect of our foreign policy. The fact that I cannot communicate with you, talking about President Reagan, so the fact that I cannot communicate with you in English means that there is another dimension to our policy and identity. The fact that we can communicate in our language, Spanish, with practically 300 million people on the American continent. This gives a third dimension to the foreign policy of Spain, without meaning that any one of them means a priority over and above um, the others. So... In previous lectures, to think about um, the questions uh, I'd put to you, we talked about how to use written primary sources to, to do that. So White House meeting transcripts, diplomatic correspondence, CIA reports. So those are written um, primary sources. But now I want to talk to you about how to use oral sources in historical research, particularly how to do or how to go about elite interviews. Elite interviewing is, in George Moyes' words, the use of interviews to study those at the top of any stratification system. Anthony Selden, a well-known British scholar, perhaps best known for his series of biographies of British prime ministers, writes, warm, vivid, contemporary history has almost always been written by authors who have conducted interviews. Obviously, Richards is referring to semi-structured interviews, which are open and allow for new ideas to be brought into the interview as one goes along. And that's different to structured interviews. Um, structured interviews, each interviewee gets exactly the same set of questions in the same order. So there's no chance of the interviewer to ask different questions. There's no flexibility. Um, and when it comes to oral history, I would also want to encourage you to think about interviews under two headings, or under two additional headings, whether the interviews are our own or whether they're someone else's. So, in short, who conducted the interview? And the reason why I think this is important really boils down to the fact that um, if we get, the, uh, we get the chance to ask questions or whether we need to rely on someone else's set of, sets of questions. So, who's... Do, who's coming up with the questions and who's um, putting them forth. But before we even, if, if we do get the chance to ask these questions, there are two previous um, conditions that, um, that we need to fulfil. One is that the people we want to talk to are alive. Obviously, um, that entails doing more recent history. Um, 
so alive, and the other condition is that we get access to them. Obviously, because these are elites we're talking about, access to them is not necessarily the easiest to get. So alive and access, those are the two ideas. So to help me put these points across and to give you a sense of how to use elite interviewing and historical research, and especially um, how to use it for this um, Spanish case, I want to show you three excerpts from three different interviews um, from Marcelino Oreja, George Schultz, and Javier Solana. So they're in your handout on page two, if you want to have a look. So these three interviews are with foreign affairs ministers. So that's sort of the, the theme. So they're, they're all, the three of them are foreign affairs ministers or secretary of state. Um, two are Spanish, one's American, two are more conservative-leaning politicians, one's a socialist. Um, two are interviews I conducted and one isn't. So that's to sort of give you the idea of um, are, they, are they ours or are they not. And I think each of them said something different about the start, the middle, and the end of the cold of the time frame I'm looking at. So this decade, and, the last decade and a half of the Cold War period um, on Spain. So let's take a look at the first interview. So the interview, that interview in particular, is part of a big oral history project called Voices on Europe, um, and it's mostly online, so it's really easy, um, so it's easy to access. To access. The Jean Monnet History Chair at the Autonomous, uh, Autonomous University of Madrid, Pilar Folguero, conducted the interview. So as you'll see, this particular excerpt Fulguero doesn't get the chance to, f to finish her question. Um, and Minister Oreja just starts talking about um, his experience as minister from 76 to 1980, so that's, that's the transition period. And what he, what he says is that for him it was particularly important for Spain to join European institutions um, because Spain could not at the, that time join the European community. So the idea was, let's join the Council of Europe in the meantime. So what, one of the things I wanted to show you with this excerpt is, could we have asked the question differently? Could, would we have managed to actually finish the question? And would, it, would we phrase it um, differently? Now, let's turn to excerpt number two. So what did the US... Spain's major ally, think of President González' 82 campaign. So we've, in a way, already discussed, we talked about this last week with the CIA report, but let's just triangulate and see what um, Secretary of State uh, Schultz thought of President González when he first met him. And um, he says that he was surprised by President González' candor and his decision not to follow President Mitterrand of France's nationalization program. So the idea is, this is a bit strange. I mean, he's a socialist, but he's not going to follow President Mitterrand's nationalization program, uh, and Mitterrand's a socialist. So he's a different sort of socialist. So this, does not, does, this um, sort of calms my fears. And it, it's not surprising that Secretary Schultz would emphasize uh, and would remember till today what he thought of President González 
and his economic policy because Schultz is an economist and he was um, and he served as Treasury Secretary during the Nixon administration. So before he became Secretary of State with President Reagan, he was Secretary, uh, Treasury Secretary with President Nixon. So that sort of uh, that looks at the mid part, the middle of this last decade of the Cold War period. But what about the end? So let's have a look at the third interview. What does Javier Solana have to say? about Spain's support for German reunification. So what does he have to say about the end of the Cold War and Spain's role in it? So Solana, and this was just last week, thinks that Spain was not in World... Because Spain was not in World War I and was not in World War II, so Spain had no his historical memory of what Solana calls the European Civil Wars, so because Spain had not participated in, in either of them, Spain could support German reunification, unlike France. So this is after... So German reunification is after um, the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989. And that's the year our Book of the Day was published. Um, so let's have a look at that. So, Todas las Almas is a novel, as I said earlier, by Javier Marias, published in 1989. The translation by Margaret Giles Costa came out in 92 as All Souls. Marias, so the author of the book, was a lecturer in Spanish at Oxford, and so too was the narrator of his book. Marias, at the very beginning of the book, he writes a little author's note and says, there's no, we both, um, the narrator and myself, we were both lecturers at Oxford in Spanish at the same time period, but this is not biographical in any way. So All Souls is the story of the, narrators with, the, the narrator with no names, love affair with Claire Bayes, an Oxford professor at All Souls College, hence the title. Claire and the narrator with no name meet at High Table, one Hillary term, when Professor Cromer Blake, the narrator's gay friend and colleague at the Spanish sub-faculty, introduces them. So the two start uh, an affair, even if, as the narrator puts it, adultery is hard work. She is married and has a son, so Claire's married and, and has a son. Right before the end of the narrator's two-year-long stay at Oxford, he asks Claire to move in with him. But she turns him down. Uh, she says, I like living with my husband. It's pleasant, and I am used to it. What a love declaration. Um, so we then learn that Claire's mother had had an affair when she was a child, and the family lived in India. And Claire's mother actually ended up committing suicide, partly to do with, because of her, um, this love affair, extramarital affair. So Claire's father, a diplomat, um, brings, um, br brought her up. The narrator with no name writes about his and Claire's romance once he's back in Madrid. Uh, by then, two of his closest friends at Oxford have died. And he too is now married and has a son. 
But today I want to think beyond the narrator with no name and Claire Bay's affair. The book, I think, offers really interesting insights into Oxford University life, Spanish-British cultural differences, and the late Cold War period. And this is the framework in which I'm trying to put everything we were talking about today, but the late Cold War period. And this is all done from a Spanish lecturer's uh, perspective. So we see things uh, in the novel through his eyes. So what I'm trying to get at is that setting is important, whether it's Oxford University, uh, country, so Britain, or the international context. So I'll start off with Oxford University life. If you'd like to turn to um, excerpt one in your handout in page three. So he says, the narrator writes, As I mentioned before, my duties in the city of Oxford were minimal, a fact that often made me feel I was playing a purely decorative role there. On realising, however, that my mere physical presence was insufficient in itself to decorate anything, I occasionally felt I ought to put on my black gown, obligatory now on only very few occasions, with the primary aim of satisfying the many tourists whom I'd pass en route from my pyramid house to the Taylorian and with the secondary aim of feeling both disguised and slightly more justified in my role as ornament. I would therefore sometimes arrive in disguise at the room where I gave my few classes or lectures to various groups of students, all of whom treated me with an excessive degree of respect and an even greater degree of indifference. So the narrator uh, taught post Civil War literature at Oxford, so sort of what we're discussing today. And he also taught translation tutorials and would come up with really wild etymologies. So um, basically he'd invent what words meant and where they came from. Uh, and he, and he, he writes, I often had to invent spurious definitions for antiquated or unintelligible words that I had never seen or heard before, and which, of course, the students would never see or hear again either. The narrator also describes some of Oxford's unusual traditions. The ward, so the All Souls Warden's anglified Latin prayer at dinner, polite and timed conversation at dinner, second desserts after high table, an obese young economist whose only subject of conversation is his doctoral thesis on a positively riveting topic, side attacks in England between 1760 and 1767. Apologies if that's what you're working on. I said, I said earlier that I wanted to focus on setting, so country. Marietta's book, I think, also sheds light on cultural differences between Spain and the, and the UK. And these are mainly to do with social dynamics, silence, stare, and speech. For instance, he writes, In England, strangers rarely talk to each other, not even on trains or during long waits. And he actually, he's, he recalls, so he comes up with this idea when he's thinking about his midnight train from London to uh, to Oxford, and writes, the night silence of Didcot Station is one of the deepest I've ever known. 
or when he recalls his high table dinner at All Souls, so that's the night he meets Claire. As is well known, the English never look openly at anything, or they look in such a veiled, indifferent way that one can never be sure that someone is actually looking at what they appear to be looking at. Claire apparently does not fall into this category, into this non-staring, glancing category. Um, apparently, according to the narrator with no name, it's her Indian upbringing. So they exchange many glances over dinner. Finally, on this um, Spanish-British cultural differences, um, so the country context, as the narrator bumps into the father, the daughter, and the latter's son, and that's except number two in your handout. Um, so as he bumps into the father, the daughter, and the latter's son, that is, my lover with her son and her father, at the Ishmolean Museum, the narrator decides to follow them around the different collections. The museum is practically empty, except for the lethargic keepers on their chairs, like Andalusian neighbours sitting deep in thought in their patios after their siesta. So we have the lethargic keepers of the Ishmaelian, then we have the family group spanning three generations, who, um, the narrator writes, spoke very quietly, as do people in British, though not in Spanish, museums. And then a solitary man, so he, he then describes himself so in, in the third, and uses a third person to do so. And a solitary man, a foreigner, who no longer perhaps seems so foreign after his not overlong stay in Oxford, or perhaps had the gait of an Englishman, but the eyes of a southerner. So, speech, stares, and silence. Those are um, some of the social dynamics that the narrator picks up on when he thinks about um, public, the use of public space in, in Britain. So I've talked about the Oxford University setting and uh, the British setting, but what about the Cold War? So that's the overarching context in which the novel is set. The Cold War framework, I think, stands out most starkly as the narrator recalls two of his colleagues at the Spanish sub-faculty. So, Promer Blake, Promer Blake, who I mentioned earlier, and a new one, Alec Dewar, the Inquisitor, also known as the Butcher or the Ripper. Promer Blake, so the narrator's best friend at Oxford, and the only person to know about his and Claire's affair, falls very ill. Um, and possibly we might think it, it could be AIDS, which in a way um, raises an important public health issue from this time period. Alec Dewar, so the Inquisitor, the Butcher, the Ripper, those lovely names the narrator comes up with. Um, so Dewar, on the other hand, is an Oxford Don and a Secret Services spy. And... Um, it's, quite a, it's quite a fun and amusing part of the novel when uh, the narrator with no name discovers that Dewar is a spy because he sees him at Blackwell's reading a novel in Russian. And he thinks to himself, why can Dewar read Russian? He teaches Spanish. So he does a bit of research, and we come to excerpt number three. 
Dewar, yes. As far as I know, he never went on any mission outside England. Mainly desk work, nothing more. His only merit being his mastery of Russian. He could have chosen to study Slavic languages, but if he had, the service would have never used him. Anyone in a Slavic languages department is automatically ruled out for any work to do with the Soviets. So we see that Dewar is no James Bond, that's for sure. But still, it raises this idea that um, the novel is taking place in a Cold War setting. Where, and, the, and again, the idea of setting, whether it's Oxford or Britain or the Cold War, is important um, for this novel. Javier Marias, uh, so his, his, the author, the novel was used by a Spanish film director um, to inspire her movie, which was called um, Robert Ryland's Last Journey. So it's based on All Souls, the novel. But Marias, the author, thought the film, the film strayed too far from his novel. And indeed, he wrote... Robert Ryland's Last Journey has little to do with the letter and nothing to do with the spirit of all souls. So Marias decided he did not want his name associated to, um, to this movie. So he actually took the director to court. And the reason I'm talking about this is because um, this links back to elite interviewing, and that is when we deal with living sources, yes, they provide really rich material, but they, are also, they could also be limiting. So, I mean, when we think of uh, live sources, it's not like Cervantes or Shakespeare, now that their 400th um, death anniversary is coming up next year, who are not going to take us to court for getting it wrong. So... Um, that's something I, I wanted to lay out there for us to think about when it comes to both literature, performance, um, and um, elite interviewing. So today was my fourth and final lecture on um, Spain uh, in the Spain 1959 and 1992 lecture series. I do hope you've enjoyed them. I most certainly have. And do drop me an email if... Um, you have any questions if you want an expanded reading um, list or if you have suggestions or feedback I'd be very happy to to read your emails and to answer so thank you very much for coming um, and good luck to you all